I know you've heard of 3D printing. 3D printing creates a three-dimensional solid object from a digital model. In one way or another, 3D printing is being used in almost all industries, from cars to crowns for your teeth. 3D printing plays a key role in the manufacturing of those items and countless more. In the medical world, 3D printing has seen success in improving surgical techniques, creating bone and joint implants and precision instruments. Researchers have also been using 3D printing techniques in the hopes of developing tissues that could be transplanted into humans. It is fascinating stuff, and we're going to dive in during this episode of The Pursuit of Precision, the Science Advancing Individualized Medicine. I'm Kathy Worzer. I'm joined by Dr. Peter Leacoris. He's the Director of Services for the 3D Medical Applications Center at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. Also with us, Dr. Jonathan Morris, Director of the 3D Anatomic Modeling Lab at Mayo Clinic. He's also the Medical Director of Biomedical and Scientific Visualization. Gentlemen, welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I am betting... When you were both in school, you use models or products that um, were shaped by carving, grinding, or molding, probably. So now enter 3D printing. Give us the 30,000-foot the view of where we are versus where we've been. I think Dr. Leah Corris should start. Where we are versus where we've been. That's an interesting question. There's a lot of different things going on within this field. I mean, this field has advanced rapidly since I've been in it, which is about 15 or more years. From the start, just the computers have increased power, increased graphics, and everything you can do with them in the design has, that increase has allowed that design to really take shape. Before you couldn't really do these complex models on a computer or it took a supercomputer to do that. That was a little before my time. But when I got into it, the printers themselves, too, were several hundred thousand dollars to just step into the field. Now you can buy a desktop version for, say, $3,000 or even cheaper, depending on the material you're using. There's also freeware out there, which isn't a cleared path to create an anatomical 3D model. But there is freeware out there, so you can step into this field for a reduced cost right now. That's the biggest change. And the other biggest change is the widespread awareness of the field. Dr. Morris, what do you think? Well, I think Peter's right. I think there's a lot that has changed, but there's a lot that is just being technologically capable of being done. So when some of the founders of 3D printers started, like Scott Crumb or Chuck Hall, they said, you know, I want to take this hot glue gun in Scott Crumb's case and make things for my daughter and why don't we may hook a computer up to this and have it do it automatically and you know one type of 3d printing was born immediately uh, him and his wife thought of medical applications this is in the um, 90s you know late 80s early 90s i've been involved with 3d printing since 2001 so the idea of what people wanted to do with these things to make custom 3d printed objects that you couldn't traditionally mill or we're very costly traditionally mill have been there for quite some time. And I think that's true of any industry, whether it's your smartphone or a VR headset or a 3D printer. The ideas of what people want to do with these things are far advanced where the technology allows it. Like scrolling on your screen was at MIT decades before it came out. So 
I think Peter's right in that there's been a convergence of technological advancements, most related to computing speed and the printer technologies themselves that have really driven people's ability to use them. But the idea that somebody wanted to make a complex three-dimensional shape and wanted to use a printer to do it has been around for quite some time and medical uses specifically have been around for quite some time. It just hasn't been able to be feasible because of the cost, the technological know-how, and then the hardware. And similar to like virtual reality now, there's a lot of people using virtual reality, but it's not because people had new ideas about what they wanted to do there. It's that the chip speed, the headsets, the widespread adoption, the global knowledge about it has all increased. And I think the interesting things that are happening in 3D printing now are the things that weren't thought of before. So can you 3D print custom metal alloys that people never thought of? Can you combine traditional milling with a 3D printing machine and have embedded printed electronics all together as one thing? Or some of the technologies where people initially came up with like how to print micro objects, how to print multiple different types of material in the same bed, and then the things that are happening in bioprinting. Um, I think are all exciting. And Peter mentioned software. So things like iterative design, where you're letting AI algorithms design the best case part for you, which may be a complex lattice structure, which then can only really be 3D printed. I think those things are really exciting because they're changing the way that people could even think of designing because you're allowing the computer and software, really advanced software programs that need advanced computing speed, which is available today, to say, well, this is what I want this thing to do. Why don't you show me a bunch of parts that could do it? You know, and I think that kind of stuff wasn't thought of in the beginning. And those are the things I think that are really progressing now. As far as 3D printing and medicine, I think we're still at the point where we're trying to nationally and internationally deploy things that even Peter and I have worked on together for maybe a decade. And we're still in that place of trying to get widespread adoption, reimbursement schedules, printers that are available to the masses, an FDA regulatory infrastructure that supports all that, a medical billing infrastructure that supports that. So some of the things, while not new, are still like over a decade old of us trying to drive adoption. I think one of the major advances too are Jay and I come from different backgrounds. I come from engineering, Jay comes from medicine, and you've seen these merge to create this field. I mean, we look at things at different ways, but that cooperation and collaboration is, is really key to the success of this field. Well, I would I would agree with, with Peter. When we started, you know, it was me and Dr. Jane Matsumoto, and I had experience from my time at NIH in the Office of High Performance Computing, but they were like computer science people, and there were some engineers, and then there was a dentist across the street at Bethesda Navy who had the printer. And like, it was the convergence of all of those people in a space that allowed a some, someone in Bethesda Navy to come up with an idea that then a computer scientist and engineer and all of them working together is really when the magic happened. And when I came to Mayo Clinic, myself and Dr. Jane Matsumoto were the people doing it. We were the ones writing the printer. We were the ones learning the software. Because again, it was accessible. The software has become accessible to, accessible to where you could use them. But then where we really extended is when we brought engineers into the clinical practice. So the convergence of having 
engineers on the surgical team going back and forth to the operating room and solving surgical and intraoperative problems because they have direct access to the surgeons and problems and the surgeons have direct access to an engineer, not in the development of a new medical device, which might take years, but in the development of solving problems today, right now with 3D printing. And now we have 70 engineers at Mayo, which is a beautiful part of our infrastructure. And they mostly work on long-term projects to help clinical care get better or solve enterprise-wide problems that need engineering. And that's really rare for a healthcare center. It's just part of who we are since the beginning of Mayo Clinic is to have engineers on board to solve problems. But having clinical engineers that are now not working for the medical device firm, but are working as part of a surgical team in the Department of Radiology, it just was unheard of when we started. And now we're kind of 16 years into it and just hiring more engineers. Let's talk, let's drill down into some of the uses, okay? I was wondering, and I'm glad you mentioned the dentist that was nearby when you were all starting out. I believe dental implants were one of the first medically approved uses of 3D technology. How has 3D technology changed how patients with musculoskeletal issues, how they are treated specifically? And I'm wondering, since Dr. Leah Corris, you work with these young soldiers where you are who are injured and need to get back to some kind of life. How is it changing their lives? In a couple different ways. So you can look at what we do here using 3D printing in multiple different ways. One of the ways is just those pre-surgical models. You take that CT or MRI data, and then you're going to bring that into a program to reconstruct the patient's actual bones or the patient's actually anatomy. So you can take that, and a lot of times those go to an orthopedic surgeon, and they'll look at this complex fracture or bone or amputation. We have this interesting event that can occur in some of these amputations that's called heterotopic ossification, which is bone growth outside the normal bony area. And sometimes the orthopedic surgeon has to go in and remove this extra bone growth, or they may have to transect higher. And this model gives them the feeling like they've been there before. So that's just the simplest case of, of 3D printing and some of the things we've done for younger individuals. The other main thing we do for these amputees is prosthetic adapters. We do have metal printing in-house, and one of the first things we created were these, we call them shorty feet. They're these little feet that go on the end of the socket for bilateral above-the-knee amputees to walk like they're ambulating on their knees. You ask why they might want this, but they want this because they're going to start them low in training and then build them up higher to learn how to rewalk. Some also want these just to get on the ground and play with their children or wake up in the middle of the night and use the bathroom. A lot of these amputees, we take for granted what they can't do, such as brushing our teeth, putting on deodorant, washing our face. A lot of times you may need some assistive technology to help them. So those are a few of the things we can do here with the array of 3D printers. We print with anything from the normal plastics to nylon, then to uh, titanium here. Also with dentistry, we're bringing in cobalt chrome within the next couple of weeks here. So I'm pretty excited about that. Say, I'm wondering here, let's talk about surgery for just a moment that was just touched on by Dr. Morris a few minutes ago. When we think of 3D printing and improving surgical techniques, right? How does that technology bolster something called digital surgical planning? How are they both working in concert? What Peter 
Sid was absolutely right. E but even the simplest form of anatomic modeling for patients with musculoskeletal injuries, or in our situation, we do a lot of oncology, so orthopedic oncology. To do that at a really robust level, um, to create gold standard anatomic data for the surgeons from imaging, it might be the simplest form of anatomic modeling for 3D printing, but it's certainly not the easiest because to take imaging, which is the first step of all 3D printing, and get it to a point where some of our surgeons, they want all the arteries, all the veins, they want the urinary collecting system, they want the critical nerves, they want things that we can only see on MRI and some things we can only see on CT and co-register them and get that digital twin of the patient back out here into the real world. So like, yes, we're going to scan them. Yes, we're going to find out all kinds of information to them. But then they want us to digitally replicate that person and getting that gold standard data for just for things that aren't bone, that they want blood vessels, veins, arteries, nerves, urinary collecting systems. I can say we have a staff of 16 people now up here that do that, and we still only touch a fraction of the patients that come to Mayo Clinic because we do about 75,000 surgeries a year in this hospital, and we do about a million cross-sectional exams every year, and we have no way to, to process all that data. So we generally stick with the complex cases, cancer resections, complex redos, things like Peter said, like heterotopic ossification, the anatomy is distorted. Because it does allow the surgeon to have a feeling like I've already been here. One of our doctors, Dr. Sim, would tell us, I'd say, well, Frank, why do you need this? You've been taking apart the pelvis since before there was even CT scans. He'd say, well, a lot of things I would find out in the OR. And this gives me a lot of information outside of the OR, allows me to talk to the other teams, vascular surgery, GI surgery, anybody who's going to get you there. Because a lot of these complex surgeries are more than one type of surgeon, and it gives them a common vehicle to communicate with. And I think it's incredibly helpful. And I would just add to that step. Peter and I are part of an organization called the RSNA, the Radiology Society of North America. Within that organization, we formed a 3D special interest group of doctors, engineers, industry, scientists, which was also a big lift because medical societies typically only allow medical people to be part of the society. So we had to convince the society to say, no, we need engineers and industry and people to help solve these problems. And that group has been really taking on the effort to provide national infrastructure. There has to be IT infrastructure. There has to be incorporation with electronic medical records. So you're trying to build point-of-care manufacturing inside of a system that's, that wasn't ready for it. So all that had to happen for us to get to billable anatomic models with software that's FDA cleared for a diagnostic model. And in doing so, the next step from that then is what you talked about digital surgical planning, or what we call virtual surgical planning, or VSP. Again, it's not something that Mayo Clinic or Walter Reed invented, right? The ideas were invented by surgeons said, what if we did this digitally? What if I did this digitally? What if I made this cut on a computer and then printed or manufactured, and even with milling, a guy that would say, take this saw, and it only goes one direction. So what we do is we created an in-house way that a surgeon, let's just take the face, because we do a lot of faces in, in, as well as orthopedics. A surgeon can press an order in the electronic medical record that says anatomic model and sterilizable surgical guide, and the hospital will be the manufacturer. So instead of going to, let's say, one of the major medical manufacturing companies, 
now up to guided osteotomies or making guides that cut through bone. We do that entirely as part of the surgical team in-house with a manufacturing system that sits above the OR. So we get a scan. The first step is we make an anatomic model. The next step is, let's say we're going to remove the jawbone. So we're going to remove a piece of the jaw that's maybe like from the side of your face to the middle of the face because you have cancer or destruction of the bone from trauma or whatever. Well, we can't just leave nothing there. So for decades, the thing that they've used is the fibula or the outside leg bone. So you'd say, well, this is just a woodworking problem. I have a spot this big. I have another thing that I have to fit that spot that has to have an angle to it, a piece like this and a piece like that. So how do I create those cuts ahead of time using digital surgical or virtual surgical planning? So a company made a software that allowed that to happen, which allowed us to bring it in-house. And we also had to have printers that had materials that we could buy raw materials with batch contracts. Say, you can't change this material because I'm going to have to spend about $100,000 to test it because I'm going to 3D print something from your CT scan that's a guide that's going to guide a saw. And when we take your skin off, we're going to screw it onto the bone, which means that it has to be sterilized, it has to be biocompatible, it has to pass all kinds of tests. And now the hospital is the manufacturer of record, not a med device with a 510K clear process. And I think that's been a dramatic leap forward because we do about two to 300 of those a year, what I just described. We do another two to 300 of mid-face advancements with patients that have congenital deformities of their mid-face or jaw, where maybe the jaw has to be advanced. They have a big overbite, or maybe they have a big underbite, and their mid-face is depressed, and you have to bring that forward. Well, all those require to saw parts of the bone, parts of the face apart, and move those pieces of bone. So that's all guided. And then when you go back to your original opinion on musculoskeletal, so now we have a tumor of a patient in the pelvis. So your pelvic bones are one of your largest bones. And the surgeon wants us to create guides that say we have this anatomic model. We have radiologists that assured us that this tumor is the exact size of the tumor in the body. We don't want to cut into it. That then we want you to create guides for us that screw on the pelvis, that just drive our saws in only one direction, that allow us to remove the tumor. Yes, one step, but now we have a big gap, wherever that gap is. And we want you to guide our either hardware or cadaver pieces or pieces for the patient's body to fill that gap. So we're both making the model first step, doing virtual sur surgical planning second step manufacturing a sterilizable medical device that's going to guide the resection third step, and then guiding either the implant or the cadaver piece or the body piece to take them somewhere else to then fit that spot. Those two things in the cranium facial realm and in the orthopedic oncology realm for point-of-care manufacturing um, at Mayo Clinic, and I'm sure at Walter Reed, it's really driven what our surgeons are capable of doing. Like, we got an email this morning from one of our head and neck surgeons with a picture from the OR, from what we made, from what the reconstruction was. In cases of custom metal implants, we don't do custom metal implants at Mayo Clinic yet. We have a metal printer, but it's not FDA approved for implants. And the FDA has been pretty clear about if you're going to make an implant, you have to be 5 to k cleared. So in those cases, we work with a custom metal manufacturer who will then make an implant from our plan. And he sent us this picture from a month ago. And he said, I just saw this patient in clinic. And here's what we did in the OR. 
And I've been doing this for 20 years now. And for the last five to 10 years, we've been advancing this. And what we did for this man was impossible when I started. And he's sitting in front of me and he looks great. You know, and I think that is really where the advancement has been. It's the combination of what the surgeon wants to do, the technology, the radiology software, the engineers as part of the surgical team. And when you wrap it all up, you see a patient like that. You say, there is no way we could have done this 10 years ago without all of this. And Dr. Leah Chorus, I am betting that you've had also patients that you've run across, that you've heard of these success stories. Oh, yeah, definitely. And the crazy part is, for the most part, Jay and myself, we're in the background. A lot of times the patient doesn't even know that the lab in the hospital produced this piece for them, especially with the prosthetic components. We'll design prosthetic components from what the prosthetist wants, and then we'll give them to the prosthetist. They'll fit the patient with them. One of the things we did was a hockey skate adapter. And I play ice hockey myself. And one day I'm at the rink and they have the Wounded Warrior League before my game. And I saw the guy skating. I was like, knocked on the glass and said, hey, I designed that piece for you. <laughs> so, yeah, there's all kinds of fun stories. Yeah, we don't seek out the patients because this is patient care, of course. But, you know, sometimes the patient will come and say, OK, where was the model made? And they'll come up and we'll get to visit with them occasionally. And you can tell they really appreciate it. I would say it's one of the benefits for me and our staff. We're right in the hospital above the OR. We have engineers, I'll say, well, you should go down and watch this part of the surgery or this part. You design that. You know, go down there and be, be present and, and A, make sure it's used correctly like any good representative. But B, the engineers learn a lot of the surgical technique, which then makes them better. But then they meet the family or they meet the patient. Our ENT floor is like 50 yards that way. So like the patients will walk by just as part of their normal day and we're pretty present and easily seen. So we're really constantly involved with seeing patients and then we get feedback because we don't see the patient follow up. The surgeons do, but we constantly get feedback. And I don't know, Peter probably runs this too. Like one of the side benefits of this is patient education so let's say we make that complex pelvic tumor model that's got artery, vein, tumor, bone, urinary collecting system. You as the patient, when you come to see us, and I only treat spine tumors, but I have the same problem. We have to talk to you about something really complex. And we have to start with anatomy and then move into what a tumor is and then move into what your type of tumor is and then move into your scan. And anybody out there that's ever had a CT or MRI scan, even for physicians that aren't radiologists or surgeons, it's difficult to understand what is being shown because a radiologist might spend five years of training and two years of fellowship to get to the point where they're starting, you know, and then we're showing it to a layperson, saying, you see this, you get it, that's your spine, this is right, this is left, you see how this is normal and this is like a tumor. And there's a lot of head nodding, and it's the best, I think, is people we can do, and we have a lot of aids and models and things that physicians have, but if you show a patient their model and say, this is you, you see this little bone right here, you can feel it, that's your pelvic bone. This is your artery, your vein, and this is where the nerves are, and that's why if I remove this tumor, your ankle's not gonna work again, because the only way to get this tumor out is to take that nerve. And that within five minutes, Everyone has an aha moment, including the patients. 
So sometimes when the patients see, and then they say like, oh, we had a girl a couple of weeks ago, like she woke up from a really complex surgery. I mean, she had a bad tumor and really complex surgery and the team was rounding on her. And, you know, there's all the normal post-operative stuff. And she goes, can I get that model? You know, and sometimes the patients, they see them during that encounter and then they want them, you know, which brings up another problem because Peter and I don't have a, a budget for like printing for everybody, but we definitely print for patients scale down models if they want them or give them pieces of them. And it's, it's just another benefit of the experience that the surgeon and the patient have and the patient's understanding which should lead to better outcomes. And I think it's all just constantly evolving. Like we'll have new surgeons walk in and say, hey, this is what I really want to do. Can you try and make this model and make it in this fashion or, or move the bones digitally and then print that exact model of what you want at the end? So then we can take our metal and maybe pre-bend it before we sterilize it. There's all kinds of different things that the surgeons may want. I mean, we work closely with dentistry and maxillofacial prosthetics too. So we've made molds for uh, prosthetic ears, prosthetic noses. We print out dental casts daily for our dentistry department here. That's one of the easiest things we do because in dentistry, they were fast to adapt digital technology. So they have intraoral scanners now where they're scanning the teeth instead of taking the old fashioned impressions that they used to. They're scanning the teeth, delivering us that scan. All we're doing is putting a base on it and printing it. And we probably get two or three re requests a day just on these things. So they can give that person that perfect smile. Precision medicine is kind of what's called Industry 4.0, which part of Industry 4.0 is distributive manufacturing at the place where it's needed. And what Peter just described is every surgeon who walks into Mayo Clinic's experience and every dentist, they sit here and say, they know they have access to the, to the technology and they come with their ideas of what they would do with it to advance their care, which is something Peter and I will never come up with on our own. And that's what really drives it forward. So every innovation we've had that I've talked about has come because we partnered with a clinician that says, I have this problem. And can I come talk to you about solving it? And we're an open door, centralized facility that they don't have to pay for. Let me ask you about something that you brought up, actually, Dr. Morris, when we first started the conversation, and it was about in-house printing and some of the challenges that come of that. I believe at this point, there's like a hundred and what, 19 hospitals with in-house 3D printing facilities. But I'm wondering this, are there challenges in manufacturing these customized products in such a decentralized manner, especially when you start talking sure. about the FDA involved in this? Sure, I think, and I think that's what we've tried to think about. It's another thing that's progressing, right? So initially, like any technology, technology happens, people adopt it, they start using it rules, regulations, laws, they all come later. I mean, look what's happening with AI right now, social media before it. I mean, the, the FDA is just starting to deal with that virtual and augmented reality applications in medicine. Like, there's all this technology that happens that allows people to advance things, but you want to do it safely, right? So at Mayo Clinic, we're lucky in that we have a, a number of people that manufacture things. So we have stem cell manufacturing facilities, we have nuclear medicine, pharmacy manufacturing, we have some bio manufacturing, and we have an FDA center of excellence. So 
we have a lot of resources to pull from so that we can create a GMP, which is like good manufacturing principle, right? Like we think that distributed manufacturing should be accessible for medical care, but should also be safe. So part of that RSNA 3D SIG is to both publish data about uh, when is it appropriate? Like you shouldn't make 3D printing for everybody, right? It's, it's like any other medical tool. It's not for everything. When is it clinically needed? And two, what are the quality control concerns that a manufacturing center at the point of care needs to think about? So Dr. Leo Corris's group, Dr. Ripley's group, Dr. Rubicki's group, my own group, we've published extensively on just quality control standards for medical manufacturing because all of a sudden you have the capability to manufacture, but somebody who's the average doctor, like I started in 2001, so I think I've been in this field for a long time and understand medical manufacturing, but any doctor in this country could go buy a printer, like Dr. Leopold said, like you could go buy a 3,000, 5,000, half million dollar printer and start manufacturing and you don't know about GMPs, you don't know about regulatory infrastructure, you don't know about what type of ISO testing you're supposed to do for sterilizable objects. So we've tried to engage both the medical community, written a lot of peer-reviewed literature between our entire group, engage the manufacturing groups, so the Society of Manufacturing Engineering, the American Society of Manufacturing Engineering. And then Mayo was the first group to co-sponsor a meeting with the FDA on point-of-care manufacturing which then there's been several meetings since then between the SME and the FDA, between the ASME and the FDA, between the RSNA and the FDA to try and risk stratify, like, where are we, right? Because the FDA doesn't regulate the practice of medicine. So if a surgeon comes to Dr. Leo Corris and says, I would really like a device that does X with these material properties. And Dr. Leo Corris is a material expert on properties of certain types of material and 3D printing. Well, the FDA doesn't regulate that relationship because it's under the practice of medicine. They've had to come up with a regulatory infrastructure that says, EP, what should we regulate? We can regulate the sale of software that leads to a diagnostic anatomic model. That's one thing. We can say that producing sterilizable osteotomy guides at the point of care using certain materials is allowable without a 510K because it's happening under the practice of medicine. The FDA's right now is that they don't regulate the price of medicine. They regulate the sale of commercial goods and in interstate commerce. And for me, I'm not selling it to the craniomaxillofacial surgeon. I'm producing it and giving it to them. And the cost benefit is we have better outcomes, faster time in the OR, less time under anesthesia, which sometimes is every hour in the OR is $80 to $100 a minute. So we can save $6,000, $9,000, $12,000 really easy on a complex surgery. So... You know, I think it's a place where, like, we want people to do it safely. And I think as a national organization, you know, there's a lot of people, uh, Andy Christensen, Bill Weedock in the beginning, Peter Leocoris, Frank Rabicki, Beth Ripley. There's all these people that are leading the national point-of-care manufacturing push, right, over the last decade. And all of us have been very focused on what quality control standards you need to do this. Now, now that it's become an industry, the market is responding. So there are companies that say, well, send us your data and we'll be the manufacturer with a 510K clear product, just like any other medical device. So there are companies like Rico, Axial 3D, 
um, Stryker, Synthes, they'll all do it for you as a manufacturer. But then you lose that direct connection above the OR. You lose that ability to really rapidly iterate because they have to take on a risk and they're really risk averse, right? If it's not 510K cleared and passed. So the next thing that's happening is there are companies and the FDA has brought up this infrastructure of a medical device manufacturing system. So I'll give you an example. There's a printer that's out called Comovis. It prints in peak. They want their system approved by the FDA to manufacture and implant. Not that I, as the user of that printer, has to get 510 k clearance, which is the traditional medical device. You manufacture whatever, milling, printing, but you have to get 510k clearance. Now they're talking about having a device, which is the printer, be a medical device manufacturing system that spits out a part. And as long as you follow all the quality control standards with that printer, that part is 510k clear. It doesn't exist right now, but the regulatory infrastructure for that to develop is happening. So, Dr. Leah Kouros, I'm curious as to what you think of what your colleague just said, but also against the backdrop of reimbursement. I mean, let's face it, right? What will reimbursement models be like for 3D printing services and products in the future? Yeah, I, I agree with pretty much everything Jay said there. For the systems and everything that goes into the hospital, it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all type of event or type of clearance for any of this that happens in a hospital. It might be that if you're only printing pre-surgical models, you use a cleared system that has the FDA clearance, you're working under their 510K, you're good. If you want to go further, maybe you do have to show you have some GMPs in place. And then if you want to go further to implantables, Maybe the FDA comes in and says, well, if you're going to do these, we want you to have a 510K. So it won't be a one-size-fits-all for all hospitals out there. There'll be, I think, different levels and different systems, and industry will meet different needs of each of those hospitals. For reimbursement, this is a complex topic that we could have a whole podcast. show. <laughs> yeah. um, that, that it's difficult because a lot of facilities have to actually reach out to a lot of these insurance companies to see if they'll reimburse. I know some will, some won't. A lot of these companies out there that supply implants wrap a lot of that 3D printing up within the cost of the implant. It might not be seen, but yeah, you're paying that much money for the implant for a specific purpose. So the category three codes are a start. And I have to say, we're a little different because we're the military and we have our own insurance system. So the cost to us is more of this was the best thing for this uh, wounded warrior who served their country. We don't really look at the cost as much as a private institution would. Plus, we deal with different injuries, too. But this is something every hospital is working on, and there's different methods to get this reimbursement. But at the end of the day, I think this has to be something that's going to come with that cleared medical device and cleared system that these insurance companies respect, and they see the good, and they see the evidence that 
this will save them money in the long run reimbursing. I think the reimbursement, like that's another thing that RSA 3D Sync really tried to tackle with the American College of Radiology to go to the AMA and petition for a code, a category three code, which means you have a code to collect data to go to a category one code to seek reimbursement. If you look at like breast MRI, for example, from a mammography, it had to go through a certain phase. It had to go through a, yes, it's possible. We need a code for it to build because it wasn't a thing ever. And then we had to collect data, produce evidence that you should do this in certain clinically appropriate scenarios. And then there's a category one code that really only gets reimbursed by an insurance company if it's being used clinically appropriate and what's deemed to be not experimental by them. So the ACR went to the AMA in 2019. We were able to get category three codes in a very, like I think, short period of time. And now there's a registry. So every one of those hospitals in the country that's 3D printing for patient-specific anatomic models and guides can submit their data to an ACR registry as we build that data to go to category one code, hopefully in 2024. But that still doesn't mean that an insurance company is gonna reimburse you. It just means that you have a category one code to build them with. And then they have to decide, because they have triage trees like if headache and these red flags, yes, brain MRI, right? But if you just come out with a headache and get a brain MRI, they might say, we're not paying for that. Every headache patient doesn't get a brain MRI. It's not gonna be any different with 3D printing. And the reimbursement is going to have to be enough to cover the cost because right now, to do the segmentation, to get to the 3D model, to get to a printer, it takes personnel. And while machine learning is helping that and getting you there faster, and then the printers have a cost with a depreciation. And in medicine, there's professional and technical fees. And, you know, so the goal is if we want widespread adoption beyond leading hospital in the country, if you really want it to be like, you go to a hospital in this country today, you get a CT scan. If you want it to be where if you're getting complex care and it's clinically appropriate and you need a 3D printing model, well, there's either A, going to have to be a billing infrastructure, or B, in these cases of like virtual surgical planning and 3D printed guides, and there's just no way to do it without this that drives down the cost of the OR makes better patient outcomes and that alone pays for itself. So I think that's the scenario we're in. I have one final question and it's a pretty simple one, really. What most excites you about where this field is heading? I'm going to begin with Dr. Morris. Well, I've been building point of care manufacturing systems, I think for the past 16 years and helping set up places around the world in this country, and it's been incredibly gratifying to watch the field grow. So I think what excites me the most is that the field is at a point where there's broad scale adoption. Because like anything you do at a large academic center or a place like Walter Reed, there are people that are driving medical knowledge forward, and most large academic centers have that. But to get that distributed to the rest of the country, it's really difficult no matter what technology you're using. And I think the thing that excites me the most is that what we've been working on, and by we, I mean a whole group of people that I've named, actually happening so that a patient in a hospital that's not Mayo Clinic or, you know, Johns Hopkins or, or any other leading academic institution could have a 3D printed model and, and, and fulfill all the benefits of that. Whether industry is providing that or the academic center is providing that or the hospital is providing that, since we know the benefits of the patient is immeasurable, 
that another patient could have that somewhere else as a standard of care. For me personally, I think medical device manufacturing systems, and you know, I'm kind of nerdy about all this. So I love the technology. I love the, the 3D printers. I mean, a new printer comes on the market. We're like, have you seen this one? This one is amazing. It does this. I mean, there's so many technological advancements that it's hard not to be like a kid in a candy store. So I, I think like with medical device manufacturing systems, regulatory infrastructure to support it, in hospital printing of implants excites me for what we're doing. Dr. Leah Chorus. Yeah, I don't know if I can say it better than that. I completely agree. There's a lot of things that, that are exciting about this field, from the machines to the materials to the speed where, which they print to some of the AI algorithms that will eventually you know, maybe even take over some of the segmentation for us. But yeah, I think what really excites me is some of what Jay said is it's not like there's like three silos anymore doing 3D printing. It used to be, you know, Mayo, Walter Reed, the VA. There used to be a few silos, maybe five, but now there's a full community and we're learning from that entire community here. And everyone in the community is very open, willing to help. I mean, I'll call people that I know have one specific printer, say, hey, we're having this problem. Do you Have you ever had this? How can I fix this? They'll help. They'll call me. So it's that community feeling. And we know we're all driving to that end goal, whether that end goal is whatever we have to implement in the hospital to assure we're producing safe and reliable devices or whether it's to meet a specific patient need, we're all working toward that end goal. So that's what I really- the end, the end goal, like Peter said, is the patient. The needs of the patient. 3D printing is one tool that we've learned to harness the power of the technology to provide better outcomes for the patient. There's nothing more that precision medicine wants to do than that. Whether it's pharmacogenetics, whether it's bioprinting, whether it's genetically guided chemotherapy or personalized medicine of some sort, it all goes back to the outcome of that patient who's in front of you. And while this is one technology out of many that helps guide that, I mean, that's why we would do anything. But otherwise, it's just technology, you know, and, and like it's fickle. Technology is fickle. And making happen what Peter made happen at Walter Reed, I can tell you, is amazingly challenged. And you wouldn't do it without seeing somebody on a pair of skates and the joy in their life, or you wouldn't do it without just clinical feedback because it's too hard to be on the front end of the technological wave to make this happen. And the patient outcomes, at least at our institutions and the other ones we know, are what drives people to keep going and push this industry forward. And I think that's what it's all about. Yeah. That's true. And I always say, like Jay, Jay probably agrees, the most important resource we have is not the 3D printers, are not the computers, is not any of the technology we have, but the staff member that is able to run the printer, able to do the segmentation, and able to communicate with the surgeon or the radiologist, you know, engineers. Fix the printer. Oh, yeah, fix the printer too. Uh, we've all been under a printer before trying to fix it, but I used to say a long time ago, engineers and, and surgeons, radiologists, we all speak different languages, but now we're kind of now all speaking the same language and we're taking that language and we're moving forward. So it's really exciting as we progress. 
What a great way to end this. You two are amazing. My gosh, I absolutely have to have you back for another segment. There's just too much to talk about. You did a beautiful job. Thank you for the conversation. Yeah, thank you. That was a great conversation on 3D printing in medicine. We've been joined by Dr. Peter Leacoris, the Director of Services for the 3D Medical Applications Center at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. Also with us, Dr. Jonathan Morris, the Director of the 3D Anatomic Modeling Lab at Mayo Clinic. He's also the Medical Director of Biomedical and Scientific Visualization. If you have questions or comments about what you heard today, do send us an email. It is precisionpod, P-O-D, precisionpod, at mayo.edu. And for goodness sakes, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We will have future conversations about a number of different topics in precision medicine. I'm Kathy Werzer. Until next time, here's to your health and well-being. <laughs>